This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there and thank you for downloading this Eye on Education podcast from the 15th of September. And on the programme today, our hot topic was mobile phone use in schools. Now, the King of England's former school has banned them. The headmistress there thinks they're addictive. Now, is that the right decision? Uh, We heard from you. Lots of people got in touch with us. But we also spoke to two experts, including Manos Antoninus. Now, he's director of the Global Education Monitoring Report at UNESCO. And he's just written a major report on the use of tech in schools in principle. He doesn't think mobile phones have a place in these educational establishments. And we also caught up with Rose Lucan. Now, she's a professor of learner-centred design at the UCL Knowledge Lab. That's also in London. She had a slightly different viewpoint on the use of tech in classrooms. It was a really interesting debate. uh, So make sure you tune in to have a listen to that. Meanwhile, the UAE government has built 11 brand new schools in the Emirates. And that got us thinking, what are the latest trends in school design? To answer that question, we caught up with architect Jason Burnside, who's a partner at Godwin Austin Johnson. And with equal payday fast approaching, we wanted to find out how schools teach children about equality. We were joined on the line by Jamie Sharif. He's assistant head for years three for Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hey, hey, good to have you with us. Welcome to what is actually going to be your final episode of Eye on Education at this time of the day. We'll have a bit more on that in in the coming sort of hours, Uh, but Eye on Education will last and survive and continue in a new sort of guise, but it's going to be on a different day and on at a different time. So this is our last last opportunity to take a look at all the schools and education stories making headlines this week. Uh, And we had particularly big News producer Jennifer Crichton's been keeping her eye on this story uh, because the government has announced not one, not two, but 11 new government schools, haven't they? Indeed. We were really excited when we saw this the other day. It is, as you say, 11 new government schools with space for 28,000 pupils. So not a small building project, we can say. Now, these schools are at the heart of a drive to boost public education standards nationwide and the buildings suggest that they really are keen to make that boost. We're talking cutting-edge laboratories, amazing facilities for sports and the art and each school is about four times the size of the existing typical public schools based on capacity and they include far more green spaces and smart technology and all sorts of things to ensure that they're more sustainable than the existing school estate as well. We're talking more than 16,000 engineers, supervisors and workers involved in the construction of these school buildings to ensure that they're ready for the new academic year. And Jason Burnside, the architect and partner at Godwin Austin Johnson, which specialises in education, says there's a lot more thought goes into schools now than when perhaps we were young. The philosophy behind school design, I think, has changed massively, where The student really is at the heart of everything, as it should be. But I think that you tend to sometimes 
forget that and you see a school as just being somewhere to go and learn. But, you know, if a child is not engaged in the learning environment, then you have to question, are they really passionate about being there and what are they getting out of it other than going through the motions? Now, Jason's worked on many of the most famous school projects here in the UAE, so we'll be hearing quite a bit more from him later in the show. Yeah, we're going to look at what basically makes a good school you know what what goes into school design nowadays really interesting uh, to hear from jason there and more from him later here's our top story i suppose for today or our, it's not the top story it's our top discussion point because one of the uk's uh, most impressive schools gordonston it's actually where britain's king charles used to go is banning pupils from using mobiles during the school day. Why is that? Now, well, the head has criticised what he branded the addictive nature of smartphones. But of course, he's not the first person to say this. Now, this comes after calls for a global ban on smartphones in schools that came earlier this summer. And that was off the back of UNESCO's 2023 Global Education Monitoring Report. Their study suggested that increasing smartphone use among children is leading to classroom disruption, reduced educational outcomes, Outcomes and cyberbullying, among other things. And we've also seen this week Sweden saying that they're returning to pencils and paper and doing away with iPads a lot of the time in the classroom. So we do seem to be seeing a real shift away from technology and phones in the classroom. So we're going to be discussing that shortly with two fantastic guests. We've got Manos Antoninus, who is the director of the Global Education Monitoring Report at UNESCO, and also Rose Luckin, who's a professor at University College London's Knowledge Lab. We've also had lots of comments coming in already mm-hmm. about whether or not it's a good idea for phones to be banned in schools. Uh, just like me, Sharon's son has suggested that everyone has a phone. Uh, when Sharon asked him what he would use it for, he said, communication. She said, communicating with who? And when we actually worked through the lack of instances he'd actually <laughs> need it to communicate, he, thank goodness, logically reached the conclusion that no, he didn't need it. Now, Sharon, my boys claimed that they wanted to listen to music, but we all know they wanted to play games and watch YouTube. Right, that's just what well, I mean. I'm, I'm, I have to say, I am really struggling with the whole concept of iPads and tablets, the internet, and, and mobile phones would just be another, another thing to argue about, frankly. And so, my way of dealing with these things is to ban them. So, so rather than rather than deal with it and manage it, just ban it uh, for as long as I possibly can. And I would highlight the fact that Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and all of these very, very famous tech guys who basically invented these devices, they don't let their children have them until they're 14 or 15. And I personally think that speaks volumes. And I use, that's the excuse I use to my kids because they know who these amazing tech geniuses are. They know exactly who Elon Musk is. And so if I cite their views then I, you know, that I gain some gravitas. You know, obviously mum's wrong, but can Steve Jobs be wrong? We've been having the exact same discussion at home and my wee guy keeps saying, oh, well, everyone's got a phone. But we had the same discussion. I said, you know, the guy who invented the iPad didn't let his kids have them when he was, they were your age. And he just, he's starting to get his head around the idea that a lot of the games he likes are, are designed to be addictive. But it's a really hard thing when you give them technology and then try and explain to them that they can't just use it all the time because they're just not really I mean my son's just turned 10 and he he's not really old enough to police himself they're definitely not old enough to police themselves at 10 they shouldn't have to in many ways I think just don't let them 
have the device. Let's talk now about exam papers, though, because parents with children attending Indian schools have been issued a warning, haven't they? That's right. And it's a warning against private websites selling practice papers. The Central Board of Secondary Education issued an advisory this week saying they've released practice papers for all major subjects of classes 10 and 12. But those samples should only be accessed from the official website, which is, let me try and get this right, CBSEA, sorry, cbseacademic.nic.in. And they need not be purchased from any private publisher. Good news for kids in Sharjah because more than 60 private schools and nurseries are going to be transformed into eco-friendly facilities by next year. That's right. That's according to the Sharjah Private Education Authority, which said the move will reflect the country's commitment to sustainability ahead of COP28. Now, they're going to be transforming a quarter of Sharjah's private schools and nurseries through a number of different things, including educational activities and awareness campaigns on how to save resources. So they're going to be talking to kids about things like water and electricity and how to use them responsibly and this is in partnership with Beer Group which is a Sharjah-based environmental management company which implements waste recycling programs and they're also going to be promoting eco-friendly transportation. Yeah, meanwhile, a Sharjah University has started a sustainable farming endeavour. They're calling it Harvesting Hope. It's the American University of Sharjah and they have launched a hydroponic farming initiative that allows students to look into the latest developments in agricultural technology. They also get to eat what they produce, which is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd approve of that. Maybe we should have a hydroponic sort of facility here. We could snack on baby tomatoes in between breaks. It's, I'm not selling it, am I? Is Jen's that, looking at me with this expression of, I, A, where are you going with that? B, no, you wouldn't. And C, it's a disastrous idea. We've also just ordered coffees and I've got to be quite honest. It's skinny coffee. mocha is more appealing to me right yeah, now yeah. at this hour than a baby tomato. Yeah, yeah, let's be honest. We're all fueled by coffee and caffeine, not baby tomatoes. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hey, hey, good to have you with us. Georgia here with you till one o'clock. We're in the midst of our special Eye on Education programme with a big hot topic of discussion that we want to include you in. It is the issue of mobile phones in schools. It's all off the back of the fact that one of the UK's top schools, Gordonston, which is actually where King Charles went when he was a teenager, has become the latest institution to ban pupils from using mobiles during the school day. The head teacher there has suggested that they have an addictive quality and she basically doesn't want them in the building. Now, the move comes as schools in Sweden returned post-summer with a distinctly low-tech approach. They've decided this year to move away entirely from digital learning. Instead, in Sweden now, they're using pencil and paper. And of course, over the summer, UNESCO called for a global ban on mobile phones in schools. That particular recommendation came from the 2023 Global Education Monitoring Report. It comes out every year. And this year, it suggested that increasing smartphone use among children is leading to classroom disruption, uh, reduced educational outcomes and also cyber 
bullying. Um, that call for a global ban created headlines around the world. And now to explore its recommendations further, I'm delighted to be joined on Teams by its author. Manos Antoninis is director of the Global Education Monitoring Report uh, for UNESCO. He's uh, joining us from Oxford University. Manos, thank you so much for your time. It's very cool for us to get the man behind the report. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the recommendation that you made? Because a global ban on mobiles in schools does seem quite an extreme measure for some. Thank you. The the report uh, is focusing on uh, the broad topic of technology in education. And uh, you have to remember, we try to address countries in a full range from those that have actually no electricity in their schools to those that may be applying facial recognition uh, in uh, classroom during teaching. So our recommendations, in fact, are quite nuanced. They simply ask governments when they decide to apply technology in education to look at four things. First, is technology appropriate and relevant? Basically, is it actually increasing learning because there's an emphasis often on digital inputs and not on their outcomes? Secondly, is it equitable? Uh, technology is a promise for opening uh, education opportunities for millions, and yet we also know that it left even more out, for instance, during the pandemic. Third, is it scalable? Uh, can you apply? Do we know the full cost? Uh, and are we taking this information on the basis of solid evidence? And we know that impartial evidence is rare. And finally, is it sustainable? Because uh, there are so many social and environmental consequences for the long term that really we completely forget from privacy, safety, well-being, use of energy, use of materials. So it, it was in this broad set of recommendations that the media saw uh, a hint towards uh, the ban on mobile phones. But of course, we're dealing with all technologies in the report, not just with the use of mobile phones. That is a classic scenario when you come to the media. We do have a tendency to reduce uh, many paged reports to single uh, sort of glorified, uh, catchy headlines, for sure. Uh, although in your report, you must have looked in some detail of the, the various problems that are being caused by mobile phone use in schools. Did That's you did, did you note negative sort of yes. connotations? We, we reported on uh, the type of evidence that you just mentioned, um, the, the, the impact that it has on, uh, on student learning, uh, the uh, impacts on social relations uh, in, in the school, uh, the disturbance it causes on teachers and how it affects their teaching and their concentration, the distraction, of course, it, it, uh, it brings uh, about. So all these types of evidence that have emerged from different countries, uh, from Belgium, from Spain, um, were used in, in, the, in the report. But what we also did is that we captured precisely what is happening around the world. You mentioned the example of Sweden. Uh, we noted that about one in four countries around the world are banning phones uh, in schools or classrooms through their laws or through policies. Uh, and it, it's true that even during the summer, before even uh, the, the report was published. There were uh, increasing evidence of more countries uh, joining that, that group. And that, for us, was a major surprise in that sense. That was a, a contribution of the report uh, in shedding light to that trend. 
Do you think that, um, I mean, you, you may suggest that the report didn't necessarily have that top line of ban mobiles and schools, because obviously it looked at all sorts of different types of tech. But, but having done all the research and all the reading that you've done being an expert in your field, would you personally suggest that they should be banned? Would you prefer, for example, if you have children that they would prefer to go to a school, would you prefer them to go to a school where there weren't mobile phones available during the day? Are my children listening? Um, Probably. The, the question here is, uh, of course, uh, very specific to context. Uh, countries take decisions in uh, so many different ways. Some countries can apply or can pass a law, and the law is followed and uh, understood by everyone. Uh, other countries uh, have laws, but the, these laws are not respected in practice. Uh, some countries prefer not to take such decisions and have policies and broad guidelines. Uh, but again, it depends uh, who is taking the decisions ultimately. Is it the school uh, or is it the government? And we know that in many cases, uh, you mentioned the UK, decisions are taken at the school level. And then that is uh, an issue for discussion between the head teacher, the, the students, the parents, the broader community. I think that in, ultimately is uh, the, any suggestion, any hint of a ban should be the focus of a discussion in the school community, uh, for the school community to understand uh, what are the advantages, what are the disadvantages, and for a decision to be taken that really serves the ultimate uh, objectives and, and purposes of the school. Do you think that schools are rushing into folding technology into the school day too quickly, just because it's there doesn't mean it has to be used. Like, for example, my children go to a school and they describe themselves as an Apple school, which as far as I can tell just means that an awful lot of them have iPads and they seem to do an awful lot of work on those iPads. But it's sort of pronounced as a, a sort of moment of pride that they're an Apple a school. Do, do you think that's a, that's a good way of going about things? We certainly have a uh, key messages in that direction. First of all, uh, technology is not as widespread as we might think. Even in the world's uh, richest countries, only 10% of students were spending one hour on their devices during their uh, mathematics and science classes in the week. Um, so sometimes I think it is a bit exaggerated what is happening in schools. But we certainly um, call on governments, as I mentioned, to look at whether really the introduction of uh, technology in teaching and learning makes a difference on the learning of the students. And as you said, governments are often uh, pushed around a little bit by the narrative that technology is the future. No one denies that uh, children need better skills uh, to navigate the digital world. But the best findings show that it is those students with better literacy and numeracy skills that are better able to avoid phishing, uh, emails, or the misinformation that exists on the internet. So if you think about it really seriously, digital skills uh, are uh, coming naturally if the school delivers on the fundamentals that it's expected to deliver. And we make a very clear distinction in the report. It's one thing to teach children how to navigate the digital world. It's a completely different thing, but often this is confused. Uh, whether you use technology uh, for teaching and learning. That has to be context-specific, and it has to serve a particular learning objective. We cannot just simply apply technology across the board and expect miracles to happen. This is just uh, not true. This is not happening.
It's such a pity that you can't just send them, hand them an iPad and that they'll learn. <laughs> it's very disappointing for all of us. Uh, Manos Antoninus, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for joining us on the radio this morning. We, uh, that was very informative indeed. Very, very interesting. Uh, Manos Antoninus is director of the Global Education Monitoring Report at UNESCO. He's with the University of Oxford joining us there to discuss whether or not uh, mobile phones should be banned at schools. But there was a much wider context there, a much wider conversation. Uh, We are going to sort of dilute it as far as the questions that I'm asking uh, you guys down to that sort of should they have phones in schools? Do you think they should be allowed? Uh, and we're already getting a really interesting response on that. So thank you very much, everyone who's texting in. Um, one person here, I'm just getting the name. Sana says that her children's school has a policy that phones should be on silent and put away during school hours. Uh, she thinks that at the very least, the KHDA should be enforcing that on all schools. Whereas this person who's chosen to remain anonymous says yes, ban mobile phones in schools. Interesting comments coming through. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Okay, busy, busy this morning here on the Agenda. We're hosting our special Eye on Education programme and we've got a hot topic for you. Uh, We're asking, should mobile phones be banned in schools? Now, there's a big news story associated with this because Gordonston, which is a very posh school in the United Kingdom, it's actually where Britain's King Charles went to school. He was actually very happy there. Lots has been made of that. He wasn't very happy. But never mind, it's still a very posh school. It's still very popular. And I think they slightly changed their pupil ethos now. And in fact, this week, they've decided to ban pupils from using mobile phones during the day. They've suggested that they have a really addictive quality. That's what the headmistress thinks there. Uh, We've also seen schools in Sweden making a move away from tech. For example, they're not going to have digital learning in Sweden anymore. Instead, they're returning to pencil and paper. And we've had this big report from UNESCO, basically from the United Nations. They uh, do this global education monitoring report that comes out each year. They this year called for a global ban on mobile phones in schools. They said that they caused classroom disruption, uh, that they caused uh, mental health issues, cyberbullying, and that they actually you know caused problems with learning. Their phrase was reduced educational outcomes, which I think is a polite way of saying made kids thick. I mean, maybe that's the wrong word, but you know what I mean. Like, you know, kids were too busy. They were distracted by their phones. Maybe maybe saying made kids thick isn't quite right, particularly when I'm about to be joined by uh, someone who's a professional in their field. Um, so joining me to make the conversation a lot more highbrow is Rose Luckin. She is Professor of Learner-Centred Design at the UCL Knowledge Lab in London. Rose, good morning to you. Lovely to have you with us here on the agenda. Um, sorry about calling kids thick. I think that's probably not very constructive, but, um, <laughs> but certainly mobile phones are are very distracting. Do you think yes. it is time for us, therefore, to, to ban them from schools, ultimately, to reduce the amount of tech we're bringing into the classroom? I think we have to be very careful with the tech that we bring into the classroom. Um, and thank you for inviting me onto the programme, by the way. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, I've worked with technology in education and, and particularly, actually, artificial intelligence, which is obviously also a hot topic at the moment. But to your qu- particular question around mobile phones, I've worked in this area for over 30 years and I always come down to the same thing. Why is the technology in the classroom? You know, 
most of the time when mobile phones are in the classroom, they're not being used for learning. So, of course, they're a distraction. And, and we don't want distractions. We want students to focus on their learning. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all technology is bad. I think the key thing is to think about why is the technology in the classroom? What, what, what's the learning purpose of having this technology in the classroom? You know, does the learning activity that the technology is supporting match what the technology can do? Yeah, mobile phones are powerful computers in our pockets. But if they're not actually being used to support learning, then, well, we don't really want them there, do we? Because we want students to be focused. And I think there are, it's not so much, you know, the mobile phone in and of itself. I think a lot of the issue is to do with the fact that most of what students might be doing that's distracting is social media. And so perhaps the problem is actually more accurately one that relates to social media rather than the actual device in and of itself. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I mean, the reality for, for I think, the younger pupils, certainly I have children aged 10 and 9, yeah. I think the reality for the younger ones is that even if they are using Shobi, which is a sort of yes. program that they use, um, the temptation to slip between Shobi and YouTube is just too too good. And although yes. the teachers can monitor what's going on in the iPads, it doesn't take them long to learn how to fudge that. So my 10-year-old son has worked out that if you switch really quickly between two apps, you know, like eight times within 10 seconds, that that for a brief five-minute period disables the teacher's observation program. <laughs> and, and he's 10 and he's figured that out. Yes. So in my experience, students are incredibly good at working out how to the workarounds. You know, yeah. they're smart. And, and in a way, that's what we want. We want them to be smart. But that's not what the object of the learning activity is. You know, yeah. so I take your point completely. <laughs> I think, you know, technology has not fulfilled the potential that many of us hoped that it would in the early days of technology being used into education. And there are many reasons for that, not least that many of the early applications of technology in education weren't really suitable for being used in education. They were business applications that had been not particularly well adapted for the classroom. The situation is much better now. There are some good technologies out there that are engaging enough to, to, to make sure that the pupils are not trying to skip out of them all of the time. But it's, it's using the tools for what they're good for. And I'm not going to say that I think we should have more technology in the classroom. I, absolutely, I don't. I think, you know, human interaction is absolutely crucial in the classroom. But I'm not sure I'd want to see an overall ban in technology either, because technology can do things that we can't do as humans. You know, we can visualize things through technology in powerful ways. We can show dynamic representations. We can provide individualized support to students, which we can't do as individual teachers in the classroom. So there are many fine ways in which technology can be used to support learning. But I think we need to make sure that the balance is right. It's always about balance, you know. Let's have plenty of human interaction, social interaction, and let's have technology being used for what it's good for. And, you know, one of the areas that I think often we undervalue is making sure that when we're using a piece of technology, there's good evidence that suggests that this particular technology is going to be impactful for the students we're working with in the context we're working 
So I think, you know, it's up to us as educators to demand that evidence. And it's up to companies who are providing the technologies to provide that evidence that can help us make the right decisions about which pieces of technology to use at which points in our classroom practice. You must have noted in your research the amount that, uh, that for example, the technology is being used potentially to target or to be used to, to bully other students. Like it seems to be nowadays people don't pass notes anymore. They're, they're just now criticising each other on social media. Would that be a reason to, it, I mean, I'm using the word ban, but, but, but that would be a reason to, to limit the type of technology that enables students to communicate? Or is there a way of virtually policing that technology so bullying and, and nasty comments can't happen? I think it's really hard to police that. I mean, I've spoken to so many teachers and school leaders and, 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 and all of them have said that, to be frank, one of the biggest challenges they face at the moment are the, are the, are the challenges brought about by social media. So absolutely, it's a problem. And in fact, I would say that we have failed in the way that we have regulated social media to make it a safe space for children. We really have failed in that respect. And we need to learn from that as we move into a world that's getting even more sophisticated in terms of the technologies that are available with artificial intelligence. We need to learn from our mistakes with social media to make sure that we get it right with AI. So I completely sympathize with what you're saying around social media. You know, and, and for my part, you know, for my own children, grandchildren, you know, for, for students I work with, yes, I would rather not have social media in the classroom. That's not quite the same as the mobile phone. But I, I really understand what you're saying about social media. But it is a pity because it's also a powerful communication medium. And we do need to help our students understand how to navigate that because we can't protect them from ever from the existence of these tools and these these methods of communication. So we do need to engage with them about what these tools can do and how best to protect themselves. But I completely sympathise uh, with the desire to take social media out of the classroom. I've only got about 30 seconds left with you, which isn't long enough. But I want to ask, because I know that you study uh, artificial intelligence and its uses within the educational sector. Are we on the brink of a massive change because of AI? You know, we've I suppose it's been 20 years now since we've had the internet, maybe 25. And that was a huge leap forward. It made a huge difference to all, all sectors, all industries. Is AI going to have the same sea change, do you think? Yeah, I mean, AI has been around for decades as well. But what's different about what's happening now is that we've got powerful AI tools that are available at scale. And at the moment, freely available. I use the word free carefully because, of course, we give our data often when we use these tools. So it's not totally free. And it is that mass availability that is the change. And that is a transformational change. So we do need to recognise the fact that there is a change happening and we need educators to to, to recognise that. And we need to help them to understand how they can best ensure that this is a positive change because it can be a positive change. But again, we've got to get it right. 
the opportunity for another long conversation indeed about yes. how AI can be introduced into the classroom. Uh, Rose Luckin, thank you so much for your time this morning. Really, really appreciate you joining us. Uh, Rose is a professor of learner-centered design at the UCL Knowledge Lab in London and really interesting to find out there about her views as to the use of tech and mobile phones in the classroom and, and the scourge that, that's my words, not hers. The scourge of social media. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Yeah, good to have you with us here on the Agenda this morning. So much going on. Lots of people asking uh, and texting in about whether or not they think kids should have their mobile phones in school. Uh, Mona asks, uh, says, I think the question is, why do students need their phones at school. Mona, very good point. Abdullah Sam has said, I'm not aware mobile phones are allowed in schools here in the UAE. Uh, from my daughter's schools to friend's schools, maybe they're allowed in some, but never in classrooms, which in uh, Abdullah Sam's view is definitely the right thing to do. Paul says, I've actually seen phones in the classroom used effectively for quickfire quizzes like Kahoot. Kids love it. The teachers get great engagement and it's gamification. However, it can polarise those kids who don't have phones. I'm not sure it's a reason to have them in the classroom, but it is definitely easier as a form factor than using laptops. Now, I know that Jen has been chatting to lots of people uh, in our office to get their views. This was uh, Richard Dean's thoughts on whether or not mobile phones should be used in schools. You can't ban phones in schools. Much as I'd like to as a parent, the ideal is that they would have no digital devices, and I get that completely. But you've got to be in touch with them. I mean, my, my eldest is 13 now, and he's got, like, football after school and... I don't know, drama before school. You just need to be in touch with them. So the, the phone as a communication device is really important. Do you want them on their phone Googling stuff? Absolutely not. But to keep in touch, you do. Now, one solution that we as parents have thought about is get them a really, really cheap old Nokia phone that all they can do is send text messages and make a phone call. Will they use it? Dubai kids, will they use one of those cheap old Nokia-type brick phones that you can buy for 250 dirhams? They will not, no. So, sadly, a necessary evil. So it's a thumbs up from me for kids with phones at schools, sadly. Meanwhile, Natasha told us this. I'm going to sound very old school, but personally, I don't think children need phones when they're in school. They have enough screen time with their iPads and we don't want to be adding another device to the mix. You know, growing up, we didn't have phones, but we found our way home. We found our way to our parents after our after school activities. So, yeah, I really don't think children need phones. Malu's written her message in. She's keeping it pithy. She just says, ban the mobile phones. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there. Welcome back to Eye on Education here on the Agenda. We are still discussing the use of mobile phones in schools. So many comments coming through at the moment. Yasir, thanks for your message. Uh, Yasir says, 
mobile phone access needs to be linked with the legal age restrictions, similar to the minimum age requirements for getting a driver's license or smoking. We need to stop contributing to the corporate greed of the mobile manufacturers to make money at the cost of our kids' mental and emotional health. Yasir there with very strong views indeed. Jessica says parents are doing their kids a disfavour by giving their children phones too early. If necessary, it should be a phone that can only make calls and definitely not a smartphone. Hayat says definitely ban the phones in schools. Um, And also with another message here, they keep on coming through in front of me very, very quickly indeed. Namir says ban phones 100%. Uh, And this person says my kid's school has a policy that phones should be on silent and put away during school hours. I think the KHDA should enforce it in all schools. We have a survey on our social media as well at Dubai Eye 1038FM. That's on Instagram. Please do check it out uh, and get involved. We love to hear from you. It's really fun to have you join the conversation. In the meantime, uh, actually, I have something I was going to play to you. What was the thing I was going to play to you? Here it is. Uh, we've been speaking to uh, Suneha. She's just sent in her view on mobile phones. So I'm a mum of a 13-year-old and I do not support a blanket ban of mobile phones in schools. I feel everything in moderation is key and often we give our child the mobile phone only for pure reasons of being able to contact when he's on his way from school to home or in case of any emergencies. And as a school, they do not allow the children to use their phones while they're in classroom and I think that's what we need to teach our children rules and regulations and boundaries and you know so there are certain things that you can and can't do but just introducing a blanket ban does not support anyone really interesting comments coming through keep yours coming thick and fast 4001 is the text or you can whatsapp me on 04871 Right, we're going to turn our attention to a slightly different topic now because on Monday, the world will be celebrating Equal Pay Day. It's one of those sort of symbolic days that they're often introduced by the United Nations. Um, but they're, they're dedicated, what, I mean, essentially the one on Monday does what it says on the tin. It's dedicated to raising the awareness of the gender pay gap. Now, the reality is, is that I think it's, I think it's a really ridiculous statistic. Something like for the first three months of the year or four months of the year, women are basically working for free. If you compare women's salaries to men's salaries. And of course, in a, in a global context, in an educational context, in a school's context, you want to be sure that your children are being taught that they're equal, regardless of their gender. And it, and it's a complicated subject and it must be complicated. Uh, you know, it must be difficult to address it in the classroom. Joining me now on the line is one teacher who has to grapple with it, not on a daily basis, I'm sure, but, I'm, but I imagine it comes up a fair amount. And I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Jamie Sharif, who's assistant head for years three and four for the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Jamie, really good to have you join us on the Teams. Thank you very much for your time. And you're you teach an interesting year. So years three and four, I have a year, my son's in year four at the moment. And I know that in year three and four, there is definitely a gender divide in the classroom. 
boys definitely think girls are lame and girls think boys are lame. And my boys definitely think they're way better than girls. And, and I have regular conversations with them about, about the realities of that conversation. You know, I try not to layer too much of my own political feelings on top of that. But it certainly does come up in the classroom, doesn't it? This idea of equality. Yeah, absolutely. It, do you know what? It actually it is quite prevalent in, in year three and four, but it also starts really right down towards the bottom end of the school um, where you have our youngest children coming in and they're having those conversations. And every teacher will always tell you that one of our first rules that we teach everybody is to treat everyone as you wish to be treated. Um, and it sort of works its way up from there. As they get older, they start to realise that, yeah, they're boys and they're girls. And sometimes the boys like to do this and the girls like to do this. Then they get a little bit older and that step increases to the thing of, well, I don't want to, talk, I don't want to go and talk to the boys or I don't want to talk to the girls. So each step throughout their journey in school, there definitely is a, um, a conversation that takes place. Um, and definitely as they get older, that awareness definitely gets bigger. So how do you teach boys... I don't know. I mean, either. I think it's mostly boys. I think they're the ones out there going, no, no, boys are better than girls. I don't really think girls, girls just get on with it. Frankly, they've got too much to worry about. But certainly the boys, there's a sort of testosterone. They're like, I can run faster. I can hit things harder. I can throw things further. So how do you, because in part, I want, I need to have the conversation with my boys myself. How do you explain to them that, that just because maybe they might be physically stronger doesn't mean they're better? And it all starts with that conversation. So realising actually that we all have our strengths and that we all have our areas to develop. And you say that, that the boys are um, are more into that and that they're, they're having those discussions. The girls are as well. Okay. They're just not as loud and as vocal about it. But if you, if you watch them closely during playtimes and through class discussions, you see those conversations taking place. And it's about the teacher recognising it and saying, OK, so we notice these differences. We might have seen this in the past, but what is happening now? What do you do to overcome that barrier if it is um, something related to sports, for instance? Do we all have the same opportunities in school? Well, yeah, we make sure that everybody has that same opportunity so that you can all go and experience the same um, opportunities across the curriculum. Now, equal pay is, is one very large, overarching subject, but also the number of women who you see in certain professions is also something that, that the world is currently trying to, to grapple with. And it's certainly something that the UAE has a, a sort of razor-sharp focus on. They're determined here in the UAE that more girls should move into the STEM careers, more girls should be doing the STEM subjects. How early in school do you start to see the pupils think of certain subjects as girly subjects and certain subjects are sort of boy subjects right from the very start wow. um, so it, it comes in to they, they'll, they'll come into a classroom and often it starts with um your fs children and ten, generally the girls tend to go to the role play areas where they can um experience being teachers and other caring profession professions as such the boys they will always tend to head towards the con construction areas where they're often they're building and they're being a little bit more active in their learning approaches. And that continues as, as they go through the school. And it's interesting talking about um, the pay gap, because actually we had a discussion this, this week, actually, in year four um, about pay and how actually if someone's doing the exact same job, and I used myself and one of my uh, other colleagues, would it be fair for one of us to be paid more than the other if we're doing the exact same thing at the exact same time 
with the exact same amount of hours and work and all of those sorts of things. And they're very, very clear in the classroom that it's not fair. They know from a very early age that everybody should be treated the same if it's the same job, if it's the same activities. So it's, it's a conversation that is flowing the whole way through school up as well into the senior schools. Do you think that it needs to be do you think there needs to be classes on this like do you host like let's you know do you ever start a class a humanities class maybe saying let's talk about equality or let's talk about gender differences or do you wrap it into other conversations do you think it sort of percolates throughout the entirety of the curriculum or do you think it needs to be addressed directly so I actually think both so I think it needs to be double-ended. And what the UAE does in particular is every child within um, the UAE has to study uh, moral education and social studies. And within that uh, area of the curriculum, these topics are discussed and we teach about it, we learn about it and we discuss about it. And we look at what's happened in the past and we look at what's happening now to try and overcome those issues and what we can do moving forward to make sure that everyone is treated equally. Uh, we Again, we had a discussion um around the same sort of area uh, about discrimination within um, different areas, including work and pay and the way that we treat people within school. So those conversations are already happening, but it has to be modelled daily. It has to be modelled by the people that are in front of them every single minute so that they're having these conversations, that they feel like they can go and express themselves and give their opinion and have that discussion so that it's not this almost secret conversation that everyone's kind of aware of, but no one's touching on it. It has to be brought to people's attention. And it starts, as I said earlier, with the foundation stage where we're, we're teaching them to treat everybody as they wish to be treated so that everyone is seen as equal. And as it goes through the school, those conversations get a little bit more in depth. And we touch on um, subjects as well that uh, have a little bit more explanations around them so that they can go eventually when they leave school out into the wider world, out into their chosen professions, and they can go and lead by example so that they can really be a part of that conversation and take it forward. Really interesting to hear about how it works uh, to in, within the school gates to ensure that children are being taught about gender equality right from the very foundation stages. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Jamie Sharif there, he's assistant head for years three and four at the Royal Grammar School at Guildford, Dubai. Thank you so much for joining us on the radio today. An absolute pleasure to hear from you and really interesting to get into those thorny issues ahead of Equal Pay Day on Monday. Uh, we are going to be looking into that subject in a little bit more detail on Monday. In fact, we've got guests coming uh, from both the UAE Gender Council, hopefully, and also from an organisation called Aurora 50, who works alongside women to ensure they get decent pay. We're going to make it very practical. We're not going to be airy-fairy in our conversation on Monday. We're going to get practical advice for women on how they can ask for better wages. Also, practical advice for men on how they can help support women uh, get equal pay. So all of that to look forward to on Monday morning from 10am. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. The other big news story this week from an education point of view was the news that the UAE, the government, has opened 11 new schools. They've launched this academic year 
It's not a small situation here. There's space for 28,000 pupils in these schools. They're at the heart of a major drive to boost public education standards nationwide. They have things like cutting-edge laboratories. They've got sports facilities, art facilities. They're massive. They're four times the size of a typical public school based on capacity. There's also lots of green spaces and smart tech to ensure that they're sustainable. So we sort of got thinking, you know, we heard about these 11 new schools. We heard that they were really special. And it sort of got us thinking about, you know, how school architecture has moved on. You know, what is cutting-edge school design? So we got in touch with Jason Burnside. He's an architect and partner with Godwin Austin Johnson. He specialises in designing educational buildings. He's designed many of uh, the UAE's most famous schools. Uh, um, I, I won't tell you each one, but but you've heard of all of them. And so I started by asking him about essentially how school design has changed over the years. And in, and in fact, whether it has changed. Education design is really coming into its own. And I think... Probably if you had asked the question a decade or two decades ago, there would have been the idea that schools should be different, but they probably would fit a traditional mold that that most, you know, most of us would remember, which was long, lifeless corridors with rooms off it, bad acoustics, bad lighting. But now those days are long gone. And I think that coming out of COVID, school design has moved even further ahead in the last three or four years, where We're really starting to look at schools now to provide flexibility so that areas of the school can be used as additional space. So if we had to separate the density of the school out and and move into breakout spaces, school developers now are looking at what used to be maybe considered wasted space before. Now is actually very valuable teaching space. But the philosophy behind school design, I think, has also changed massively where The student really is at the heart of everything, as it should be. But I think that you tend to sometimes forget that and you see a school as just being somewhere to go and learn. But, you know, if a child is not engaged in the learning environment, then you have to question, you know, are they really um, passionate about being there and what are they getting out of it other than going through the motions? You add that all together and you really have to have something now that is much more holistic, much more human-centric. So a lot less utilitarian, maybe more green spaces, both in and outside the school, more bright colours, different surfaces, different textures, all of that type of thing. I think largely you're correct. I mean, I think looking at environments now where recognising that, you know, we are all individual and therefore our needs are are much more personal to us. But in a day and age where social media plays plays a big part in the student's life, whether that's right or wrong, it's not for us to debate now. But I think that you need to understand that students now react very differently with each other and therefore finding spaces where students can feel that they are able to go and disconnect and and recharge and whether that's you know just go and find a corner and sit with your friends read a book talk or even just to be able to charge your phone and be in the company of other people brings a, a huge amount of comfort to them so so thinking about it from a social aspect is very important i think in terms of the point that i raised earlier which is sustainability I think that there is a place, obviously, now for much more natural materials in school design because we have access to so many more you know, fabulous materials. But bringing those in a way that kind of harmonizes with the overall feeling of the school. And as designers, we would always advocate that if we can have natural daylight, if we can have, where possible, you know, access to outdoor spaces, easily accessible by all students, there is a huge well-being aspect to that. 
Our latest design that we've done for a school in Dubai has a, a theme of biophilia, which is this connection with nature, which sits right at the heart of that building. And the whole uh, development, the, the organization of the library, the classrooms, the cafe, is all revolving around one large uh, internal garden. And the real conscious attempt there was to connect the students both inside and out with nature, but also so that it would provide you know, a calming effect throughout the day, but also a focal point um, where we are using it to have uh, a space that we call the gazebo, for example, which is a communal uh, gathering space in amongst the trees within the internal garden to try and provide, as I said, a, a range of spaces from single individual study pods all the way up to maybe a group half class size of maybe, say, 12, 13 students sitting in a collaborative environment. And it was really then to do with breaking down the barriers between traditional teaching spaces of a classroom with one door in and out to much greater transparency, but also the blurring of the ages of what really is a teaching space and what is a social space so that, that the students have access to learning in ways that are probably maybe new to some of them, but actually probably more familiar to how they learn when they're at home, where they might start their, their homework in the living room and, and end up finishing it in their bedroom. So they're used to being in much more dynamic uh, scenarios than, than we give them credit for. So therefore, why not try to replicate that now in, in some of the school designs? Really interesting there to hear from Jason Burnside. He's architect and partner with Godwin Austin Johnson. He specialises in schools design and, and other educational uh, structures and buildings. Uh, we're going to be hearing more from him in the next coming minutes because, of course, uh, construction, you know, green construction now is a huge subject, uh, not least in sort of the building of educational establishments. So we're going to talk to him about that in the coming minutes. In the meantime, I have got to address the number of comments that are coming through, uh, the amount of enthusiasm we have for this subject, which is whether or not mobile phones should be allowed in schools. Andy, thank you very much for your comment. Uh, he says, my 14-year-old son has so many extracurricular activities. He needs a phone to coordinate pickups, changes of plan, even booking an Uber, but he doesn't use his phone during school time. So interesting there, Andy, that's a reason for a child to have a phone. I wonder, Andy, whether you've bought him a posh iPhone or whether he has, you know, a sort of brick, you know, the ones that we grew up with, you know, the Nokia, where the only game is like snake. They call them dumb phones now, producer Jennifer Crichton says. Uh, Paul has written in saying that he thinks phones in classrooms can be useful, particularly if you're doing quick fire quizzes, for example. Although he does highlight the fact that that can be unfair for students who don't have phones. And that is a huge subject because it's one thing to have a phone. Uh, but we've got a lot of, you know, there's a lot of well-off children. There's a lot of lucky families here on, and hardworking families here in, in the UAE. You know, people who can afford very expensive phones for their children and people who can't. And I just fear that in a school setting, if you're allowing the technology, then you're sort of potentially polarizing pupils between those who are really well off and those who maybe have a slightly more normal um, sort of edu financial backing. I, I mean, this is the thing. So, for example, if I was to give my children a phone, they wouldn't have the latest iPhone, whereas there are other families for whom that would be a priority, that they want their children to have the very best. So I think the solution is just to say no phones, ban them, completely ban them, not allowed in schools. KHDA goes for it, stands, stands up for... Luddites everywhere. 
who also, you know, stands up for the fact that they shouldn't be distracted, they shouldn't be on social media, and that ultimately phones aren't necessarily adding to your child's school day. Yes, they might be useful, but are they adding to their education? Are they facilitating the learning? I think probably not. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there, good to have you with us. 12.34, we are in the midst of our Eye on Education programme, discussing uh, one, amongst others, the hot topics of the day. And one of the hot topics is a new story out of the government. They announced 11 new schools uh, that they've launched this academic year. They built them in super fast time. More than 16,000 engineers, supervisors and workers were involved in the construction of the buildings. They opened this academic year and they have space for 28,000 pupils. Uh, They're supposed to be literally the sort of most high-tech schools you've ever seen. You know, cutting-edge laboratories, sports and arts facilities. They're also eco-friendly. They've got lots of green spaces and smart technology. And essentially, hearing about these schools got us thinking about the way in which schools are designed in this the 21st century. You know, how things have changed from those sort of dark long corridors where everything was very utilitarian. And so we got in touch with Jason Burnside. He's a senior architect. He's the partner at Godwin Austin Johnson. He actually specialises in education. And he told us that technology and its use in the classroom is playing an increasing influence on how schools are designed. So a lot of probably the stuff that you don't actually see, which is all of the the cabling uh, and the networking, schools are really having to invest quite heavily now to make sure that that is always there as a backbone to another uh, situation where you would have to work remotely or actually in, in improving the quality of the speed within the building. And, and we look at that very early in the design process. Along with that, phones are not great. We know that as parents, but actually they're a very useful tool in connecting people back to a place that they belong in. And um, if there's a building that they can go and hang out in and feel cool in, well, why not? You know, That's what they get when they go to their, to their coffee shops uh, to study outside of school. Why not make it available again when they're in school? How about the idea that the school should have a certain grandeur, a certain sort of status, so that the pupils sort of feel a sense of pride in their school, uh, you know, a sense that they're going to an important place? It's definitely something that you probably find... Uh, in this region where you know everyone is trying to compete in quite a you know a quite a tough market in terms of uh, we have a lot of fantastic schools here they're all uh, trying to offer something different because they all you know want to attract the best students and and I think that if you can in a way use that as a trigger for the students to be able to buy into the ethos of the school then you know architecture can play a big role in that for sure but i think that that needs to be aligned um as you say with a sense of pride that that they really enjoy being part of that school which then comes down to you know to the teaching to the teachers to the philosophy of the school um and uh, as designers when we interact with uh, these clients we often find that they are very very passionate about what they're trying to do as, as a as an educational establishment. And therefore, it makes our job much easier in a way to start to introduce a little bit of that uh, competitive edge through the graphic design, uh, reinforcing the the logo or reinforcing house colours. And that can give a real sense of of place and belonging to the students. So 
again, inter inter school rivalries or inter house rivalries within the school really then drives and motivates that teamwork and collaboration. My final question is about the sustainability of schools. Children are more aware of the need to be eco-friendly than I think even Mm -hmm. adults are in many ways. Is it possible to make schools, buildings eco-friendly on every level, right from the materials you use to the amount of power they get through each day? Absolutely, 100%. We would be huge advocates and supporters of any school operator or client, you know, looking to invest into sustainability because it is initially that. It is an investment. You know, you you do not get to reap the benefits if there is not some initial investment. So as a practice, um, we've delivered now four lead gold schools. Uh, Recently, uh, Lady Bird uh, Nursery just being awarded the fourth highest scoring uh, early learning center outside of the US. So it, it was a huge uh, it was a huge accolade for us and for that particular client to get. But the benefit in that was is that you know hopefully in the life cycle of that building there will be huge energy savings and therefore that initial investment you know uh, gets repaid time and time again. As a piece of marketing, I suppose parents knowing that their that their young child is going into a building that is sustainable, that is eco-friendly, means that the materials that they come into contact with have all been certified. And and that gives, I think, a huge sense of of confidence in that you are in a very healthy building. For us, on top of that, we would also look to make sure that, as I said, it's not just about the materials or the, or the, the systems within the building, but that the feeling of the building and therefore that well-being aspect the connections with nature and the kind of blurring of the inside to the outside. So again, students can have uh, that connection with nature uh, and well-being. We would uh, we would always try to ensure that every school that we design has some key element to it that really helps it uh, focus on sustainability as a big part of uh, of that building. Interesting there to hear from Jason Burnside. He's architect and partner at Godwin Austin Johnson, and he specializes in designing educational buildings. He's designed many of uh, Dubai's famous schools, uh, including uh, there'll be be one that's opening in the next week or so that you'll hear a lot about. So you can note that it was Jason's uh, design there. A very bold design, his his latest one, uh, in basically makes the inside of the school feel uh, you know, a bit like a, a public space, a bit like a mall in many ways. And the idea behind it is that the children will feel cool attending it and therefore they'll want to spend more time in school. Really, really interesting stuff uh, and great to have him on. So that was this week's Eye on Education. Make sure you stay tuned to Dubai Eye 103.8 for every weekly episode.